Yep, go ahead. We'll stop that uh, thread. <laughs> How was vacation? Um, it was wonderful. Um, so I, you know, I just, we spent, so to start it all off, we, we flew out and we were going to fly into Malta. Take a step back. My best friend from um, from like the seventh grade. He we went out there to help him celebrate and help him. We went out there to celebrate his twentieth anniversary. <laughs> you need he help did, celebrating your your anniversary, right? He we're, didn't. He didn't need we're here to bring joy. <laughs> That's what, yeah. People call me on me and like, hey man, can you come out? Because uh, it's just going to be difficult celebrating twenty years of marriage without you. Um, yes. you, you are that integral to our marriage, our marital bliss. <laughs> it's a service that I provide. So I hope it's free. <laughs> so he wanted to go to Italy. Um, did he want to do like the Caravaggio exile tour? I mean, going to Malta and being no, so part he, of the Knights of St. John and just, <laughs> this is where he killed a man. So he was actually, they went to London first. So we were doing like a little bit of a prequel to the vacation and then we were going to meet up in Italy afterwards. And so they were going to London cause they had friends in London. Um, so my wife and I decided, well, we've got a few days to do something. What can we do? And we were looking at other areas and we'd been to Italy before. Um, so we were trying to find areas in the area, which we hadn't been. And so we decided on Malta <laughs> mainly because I, I really had just watched Altman's Popeye and okay. was familiar with the Maltese Falcon. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I was watching Popeye and the Popeye sets that, that, the, that Altman built in Malta are still standing. There is a Popeye's village in Malta that still exists to this day. Now it is a theme park. Unfortunately, our flight got delayed going into Malta, going into, um, going into Rome. And so we were unable to get into Malta. That, that did not happen. But had it have happened, I would have gone to Popeye's Village. Popeye's Village and Caravaggio's time at the Knights of St. John. <laughs> yes. That sounds like a, like, no, it's like an intellectual sort of vacation. Right, and you yeah, can do course, sort of right. like the, yes, the the low middle brow. Not that Altman <laughs> is low brow, but I, I don't know. Popeye might be right, and then the high brow of of Caravaggio. Yeah, Popeye was. Have you seen Popeye? It's been a long time. Right, I mean, because it, it was a big deal when it came. I prefer out, the cartoon, as most do. I mean, and to be fair, Altman did not get the budget that he needed to completely finish the film. So like, as you get to the end of the movie, which is a two hour movie, it, there's no reason that Popeye movie should take two hours. <laughs> You've got Henry Nilsson who wrote the songs for it, who then was like raked over the coals for writing the songs for it. But I mean, honestly, in the going and weirdly enough, going back into Paul Thomas Anderson, Paul Thomas Anderson famously, uh, famously used them for uh punch drunk love. So uh. the, um, all the songs that Emily is singing, well, I guess, or when she's falling in love with okay. um, Sandler's character, that's that's the song that Olive Oil is singing to Popeye, or Olive Oil is singing oh, basically I, about her love life. I'm not have made that connection. Um, and that's why you're here. That is, <clears throat> I have those. That's little, what you bring to this, <laughs> this actual table that we're sitting at, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, so I lost my train of thought, but but yeah. So it was. It's it's not a good movie. It's not a good movie at all. I, I mean, well, I will say it's an interesting film, being that it was close to the cusp of Robin Williams's height or kind of the beginning of his height of his popularity. And obviously, he'd done Mark and Mindy, and he was right. done all the stand-up specials. Um, and, and he really probably wasn't quite the movie star at that point. This was 1980, I think, that this was made. 
And so it was an interesting film that was being made. Everyone was like excited about it because again, it was, it just was kind of going to be a spectacle, right? And then it just, it kind of flopped. It just was too long. It didn't know what it wanted to be. Um, it, and it was based on a cartoon. I mean, yeah, it was based on a cartoon that was essentially one note and no offense to the Popeye lovers out there. And then um, it, it muted everything Robin Williams brought to the table, right? It wasn't, yeah. it wasn't an Aladdin role, right? It was, it was just, he put, you know, putting on prosthetic forearms and uh, instead car, of painting himself pipe. blue to play a genie. Right. <laughs> those are, no, those are his real forearms. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> okay, tell so, us what the name of the show is. We oh, did you okay? Yes, I, <laughs> we're st- unless you we're, unless you want to keep talking about Malta. No, 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 I didn't um, go, so I didn't. I didn't go to Malta. <laughs> I, that was the whole point. We we spent some time in Naples. We spent some time in Florence, and then we did some agro tourism horseshit in this place called Salvadonica, which is outside of. It's all we were basically in Tuscany the entire time. And except except for one, you know, basically one day in Rome. Right. Um, but it was great. It was wonderful. It, it's it's annoying to be in Italy because you of the fascist elections that took just took place. That yeah, that that and it was weird because well, one, I don't speak Italian, so I when, turning on TV, it wasn't like it was in your face. Right? I wasn't picking right. up an Italian paper or what have you. Uh, and it really wasn't. I mean, it was. I don't know, like Italy. In the big cities, you're, it, it just seems like it's not that political of a place. And maybe we're just seeing the the populace and, and from a from a tourist perspective. But you, you didn't get a whole, you didn't get a lot of that. Um, but do you feel like America is that political of a place when you're just in a big city or, um, or in in somewhere that's not, I guess, surrounded by like minded. I wouldn't have said so probably less than 12 years ago now. But I mean, okay. like now you don't go around, I, you know, you don't see, even though Italy's elections went far right, I didn't see, and of course maybe I didn't, I just did, wasn't cognizant of it, mm. of the populism you know, here, of flags yeah. and bumper stickers and things of that nature. I didn't see this sort of Outward. display of, of, of nationalism uh, that that you know we tend to have, especially here <laughs> right, in the right. Dallas Fort Worth Metroplex. Um, when you said, I'm pretty sure that you said agritourism, but I heard agro tourism. Like you were just super aggressive in your <clears throat> in your like to do tourism it. philosophy. So, <laughs> Get out of my and, way. And, and I want be, that souvenir. And to be fair, we just stayed in an expensive resort and did cooking classes. This and, isn't and pizza. <laughs> right. I get Domino's. I know what pizza is. <laughs> I just sat there and was like, where are the fucking free breadsticks, man? <laughs> over it and over and over again. Breadsticks don't taste the same here. <laughs> Let's talk about movies and not politics. Let's um, talk about movies. This this is why does the Wilhelm scream? So, so today we're going to talk. We're going to dig deeper into the master, which is ten years old, which I think technically is fifth grade. Um, <laughs> the debate setting. Right. A little later, we'll we'll play what I'm calling the association game. If you have a better title for no, that, then, that, that's oh, fine. Okay, let's, let's um, stick with it. Good for because now. I wasn't going to change it anyway. Um, <laughs> where we we have brought in some other films that we think in some way engage in conversation with with the master and PTA. Um, 
but first, let's talk about Jean-Luc Godard a little bit. Um, the French auteur, artist, mm, titan, died September 13th at 91. He died by assisted suicide. I, I, oh, really? Yeah, I, hadn't re- I didn't read any deeper into that, but um, I saw just a quote. So my question to you is, what's your I don't know, relationship experience with, with Godard? Because he's not... I would say he's not an easy filmmaker to to often engage with. Yeah, I will say, <clears throat> you know, I have not watched. He he's prolific, right? I mean, so it's I have not seen everything clearly that he's done, and most of the stuff that I have seen, I mean, I, is mostly his early French New Wave stuff. So the you know the the early part of his career where he was really breaking out. Um, was Breathless the first one you saw? I'm just curious. It, I, but either was either Breathless or A Band of Outsiders that, oh. that I saw first. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was Breathless, and then it kind of led me in, just because that's how normally people. That seems that seems the entry point right, right. to him. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you know, it's for me. I, I would, you know, I would being being a film nerd, nerd, what have you, whatever you want to classify it, lover. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but can you say it in a lower tone? <laughs> Not now. I'm laughing too much. <laughs> um, uh, he is, aside from him just being French, and and his films aren't necessarily the easiest to watch. I will say that what what drew me to him is clearly his love of cinema and clearly his love of American cinema in as much as that he was this, you know, if you're not aware, he was part of this group of film critics who decided to make films on their own. Him and Truffaut and, and Eric Romer. Yeah. Um, and and so to that extent, like, and, and, and obviously you can't name a filmmaker of the modern era that has not been influenced by one of his filmmaking techniques. But that, but that, sen- that sense of coolness that he and love clear love that he had for what America was producing at the time and and like these B movies and noir movies and that just kind of informed his voice to that extent and then just being this one of these things where like okay I can do that and here's here's how I can expand on it here's how I can make it better here's how I can just you know it, you know take it to the next level to me that made it a little bit easier for me to get into his films was just because of that i had that i felt like i was him you know i'm not necessarily you know a, a great a great filmmaker but i felt like i understood where he was coming yeah. from also just seeing italy and france and you know just all of europe in that mid 60s era in, is just so freaking cool yeah. like it's just the the dress the speak the, the cars attitude. yeah and and it's and it's a cleaner <clears throat> europe like if you go to europe now it's a lot of and there's a lot of graffiti this it's it's just kind of it's devolved over 60 years don't hate graffiti artists graffiti's cool if they're art i'm cool i mean look oh we're not going to get in this conversation about what is and what isn't art. Right? I feel like I have this conversation way too much, right? Just like <laughs> way too often. That's not art. I'm Fair like, enough. Fuck off. Fair right? enough. <laughs> okay, no. I will say that, that, that a name spray painted in, in less than 30 seconds, I would argue probably isn't the highest form of graffiti art. Not the highest form. There you go. Okay. All right. we, <laughs> we can agree on that. We can agree but, on that. But watching, 
you know, watching Breathless as they're walking, you know, down a French street with all of the European 60s cars. And, you know, it, it, there's just a beauty to that and a, and a warmth to that. That if you're not watching these movies, and I know that, like I said, like I said, the barrier entry is a little high. I mean, and so, yeah. but there is just a love of cinema that that just exudes off of the screen. That just comes, it comes, pops off the screen. That if you are a film lover and you haven't, you know, obviously gone into his set of work, then, then I, I would highly recommend it. it, it it's, you know, I, and you, you see, and you see that same sort of love, obviously from the filmmakers today that were <clears throat> video store clerks. And, you know, I'm talking, obviously speaking of, you know, Tarantino and Paul Thomas Anderson and, and, uh, Wes Anderson and all, you know, all of these people that, that have similar styles and that, that grew up and not necessarily so much as being critics, but also grew up kind of in that that era of watching these films and then you know taking that love again and, and but being immersed in it, I mean, right? Being surrounded yeah. by being an immer- and being immersed in it. Um, I can't. So I, like I first came to Godard, I was I was living in Columbus, Ohio, and we had no money <laughs> and <laughs> and no cable television and this no streaming services were around and so i would go to the public library and just like load up on dvds and it was a lot of this was let's see i had been into sort of foreign and art house films before but they weren't as accessible it's harder to find and so right. i'd go and i'd like stack up on bergman and antonioni and Truffaut and Godard, and i would just like watch those and eventually i understood them i think right but right but and, and then and then i was in grad school when two in the wave came out the documentary mm-hmm. on, on Truffaut and Godard, and it was screening at the contemporary arts center that was on campus um so i went and saw that and a colleague asked me or a, a classmate asked me if i was a Truffaut or a Godard person i hate binary oppositions i i i hate either or questions I, right. i'm like what why the writer the essayist philip lope had a similar take on bergman and Anti- antonioni right he was like well i'm an antonioni person i'm like well cool me too but i don't know why we have to like have that conversation right nevertheless my preference for Godard has always been in the way he challenges the viewer in the way that he just will not stick to like a narrative structure and is always trying something new out right um this back to this point of breathless and all the film references he's the he was the kind of filmmaker who could overload the film with references so that his movie sort of disappeared into those but then reappeared as something brand new right and so they never got in the way you see a lot of films that make references and you're like it's a little too heavy handed on the nose right, and his never right. like never were I mean because he had John Paul Belmondo look at Bogey and say Bogey right, right I mean, yeah, and you're yeah. like he's just calling attention to it right I went back and watched two specific films um Alphaville have you seen that mm-hmm. um so Alphaville, and, and to me, it was this movie about like imagination versus reality, right? Or reason and logic. But it was also this like complete mishmash of genre films. You've got film noir, you've got sci-fi, and you got Western, right? But, and so there he is making that commentary on, use your imagination. I'm not going to deal with sort of like reason or logic um, in this city where the, you know, acting illogical can get you killed right right i mean it's yeah. such a cool there's that scene where 
Anna Karenina is crying. And someone goes, are you crying? And she goes, no, because that's forbidden. And you're just, <laughs> I mean, it's like this sly humor that you don't expect, right? But it's like Godard in this way reckons with the Enlightenment in a way that we still can't. And it's kind of like neoliberal capitalist society. We're back on politics. Apparently, right, sure. right? <clears throat> um, <laughs> The other one I watched, went back to watch was um, Goodbye to Language. Which I haven't Which, seen that one. It's just pure poetics. I mean, it, it, that's it. It's just him studying sort of the use of language and rhetoric and images and text and, and, and 3D technology. And so it's just, yeah, I mean, it's it's an assault in a good way, right, to sort right. of your senses and to, and to how he's using structure, language, and, and, and again, just images. <laughs> yeah. His use of image, his use of text, the way he uses that to say something um i just yeah i i find kind of incredible um he knew all this i mean you know back to i think what you were saying too is he he knew that the cinema was a lie right this is just i mean this movie is not real right and it, it reminds me i think he would have been the filmmaker that probably susan sontag liked most in that he let the form speak for the ideas Right. Yeah. He and then this kind of like medium is the message idea where he just let that form take over. Right. And it sort of did all the work, you know, for him. Right. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree. I, it, it, and it's and it's interesting to like you look at his black and white films and his color films and, and just. I don't know. There's just a, like I said, and I, I can't, I can't give it words, right? Because it's just no. It's there's there's the, the scene where in in contempt where Bridget Bardot is is in bed with her, I, and it's she's just asking her lover if you know if he if she you know he likes my bottom and I likes my breast, and it's right. just this. And she was obviously a gorgeous human being, regardless. But that scene, the way that it's filmed, and it's so soft and so. I don't know. Just, just, just the that's the, such the a colors that it conveys are just so amazing, and that you're just you, you just are in the scene between two people. That is just it's a, it's incredible. And, and that use of color is different than the use of color in Pierre Lafou. Oh, of course, right? yeah. Which is which goes back to what you're saying that, that yeah, the use of colors in that scene conveys something that's more soft. But heart that film was heartbreaking. Oh, absolutely, yeah. so heartbreaking. Um, I mean, a fairly autobiographical portrait of him and and, and Karenna and. I did like that all of his uh, wives were named Anne or Anna. <laughs> it makes it easy. That's so weird. It's a genius. It's a genius uh, move. He just, what? He doesn't have to right. remember. It's, it's like it's, it's like just, Einstein it, wearing the same clothes every day. And if he and if he accidentally calls his lover by the wrong name, I mean, it's it, <laughs> not going to there, is he? Right. Um, you know, you can't spell Godard without God. So. All right, you want to get into the master? Boy, do I. All right, <laughs> let's Boy, do it. Boy, do I. Uh, did you go to the screening? I did go to the screening. Did anything come out of in, in the conversation post-discussion? So, We're talking about the Fort Worth Film Club screening that was this past month. Um, on September 21st, yeah. Um, I was, I, so there's a fairly good attendance. Um, I, I think that there was, the conversation, I think, hovered around the idea of the relationship between um, Joaquin Phoenix's character, Freddie, and 
uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's character, right? So, so the 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 like summary, right, is that a naval veteran. I, I wrote this down. Right? <laughs> a naval veteran arrives home from war. I didn't, I didn't watch unsettled. It, so. <laughs> I've never seen this film. A naval veteran arrives home from war, unsettled and uncertain of his future, until he is tantalized by the cause and its charismatic leader, referring to Phoenix and Hoffman. A lot of it centered around this, I think, relationship between the two of them. Um, the conversation that is, and and how they functioned as father, son, mentor, mentee. You know, I think so many of of PTA's films are are about that re- is about that relationship or are about that relation those relationships the the father son the the wayward male looking for guidance from like an older more experienced man. I. I tend to push back on the latent homosexuality in the film. Um, I, I mean, I, I can see I, it, but I don't find it to be an interesting talking point. I don't really even think it's there. Okay. Okay, good. Uh, and, I mean, and, and to be fair, I, I I'm mean, sort of hedging my bets there on what you would say. Right? No, I mean, I can see where you'd pull that out. But I think that I think it leans into the father son aspect more than it does homosexualness. Because I think right. I, I, don't, I don't think Paul Thomas Anderson would have would have shied away from that if that's what he wanted to convey. Right, he made a movie about the porn industry. I don't think he's going to be afraid of of yeah, going there, right? Right. And and there's there's nothing that there's nothing that that, that Phoenix portrays that is anywhere near homosexuality. In fact, all of his In fact it's the opposite. Right. All of his desires are for female <clears throat> adulation, for female companionship, for for connection with women. He clearly is looking for structure in his life. He's clearly looking for, actually, I, I take that back. I don't think he's looking for structure. I think he's looking for a sense of self, right? Right. He doesn't, and, and he hasn't found it so far in the institutions in which he's placed himself in. So obviously the military did not give that back to him. And it only, it actually degraded his overall mental state. And so when he stumbles upon the cause, he finds something that's interesting there that that allows him to to medicate in a more in a, in a different kind of way than he than he than he had been in the military seemingly more productive way right <laughs> but right. i think you i think you i mean you, you hit on something there where where the cause welcomes him right so it 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 it's sort of or at least part of it right opens the open opens its arms and and brings him in right now whether that's in a cultish way or not i don't think this guy Cares. Well, well, does it though? I mean, is it the cause that opens him? And, and Chris, I guess this is the conversation that we can get into. But does mm-hmm. it, is it the cause that welcomes him in, or is it Fim, Philip Seymour Hoffman? Is it Dodd that welcomes him in? Is there a difference? Right, and, and because well, and I would say from my perspective of the film, there there is because I don't think the, I don't think the cause exists without Amy Adams' character. I think Peggy is a significant portion, and she's the. I, I, so if you want to put the you know, and again, I. I not to get, I guess we can get Freudian in it, but it, but she clearly <laughs> right, is right. the super ego. I was going to say, I mean, Dodd's ego, and 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 Freddie is the id, right? Yeah. Freddie's just trying to find himself, doesn't understand. There's no morality. Peggy is all about the cause, sure. and and Philip Seymour Hoffman bounces back between the two of them, in the sense that he's always drawn to this, you know, concoction of a of a human being that seemingly can do whatever they want to do. Right. And 
And but he also wants to be able to pull that back in. And like I said, it, there is that father son aspect because clearly Dodd does not have the ability to convince his own son that what he's doing is is worthwhile or right. even real right. or, you know, something to be, you know, it, Jesse Plemons sits on the outside of it and just basically is there to take in the benefits without actually having to be, you know, actual part Do of any of the work. Or right. Like, yeah. Be part of that. But I, I think that I. <laughs> So this idea of the cause or who is the cause or does the cause welcome him in or is it just Hoffman? I, I don't think you can have sort of that that organization being the cause, right, without both Hoffman and Amy Adams, right? I mean, or that character, Peggy, because <clears throat> she is spurring him along, right? She is sort of that ambition, right? Right. I, I think with, with without her sort of playing that role as, as the ambitious spouse pushing him on— Dodd or Hoffman is just going to be a, a near do well, right? He's never going to quite. I think he'll fulfill that kind of role, right? He'll just be a failed science fiction writer, right? He'll be a guy with some great ideas or some good ideas, some ability to to manipulate. He'll have ideas, there. right? But he won't <laughs> be able to drive them. He won't be able to get money out of them, right? And he won't have the the. He will always be drawn yeah. back to that. Yeah. That well, and, and thing, first, whatever thing, thing he sees in Freddy. And at first, Adams does, Peggy Dodd, does welcome him in, right? Sit with us, Freddy, she says. Right? But right, it's, it's only right. later when she sees kind of how how her husband is acting through Freddy that she starts to recoil and push back. Yeah, that scene, um, not to jump too far ahead, and I don't, you know, this is our first one of these, so how we want to actually deconstruct these movies is going to be a by-the-seat-of-our-pants experiment. <laughs> the scene In a Derrida way. that interests me, that and when I go back to it over and over again, I can't quite put my finger on how I, how I interpret it. But the scene in the house, in Laura Dern's house, where Dodd is singing and dancing, dancing. and yeah. then from one minute yeah. to the next, the women are clothed, and all yeah. the women are then completely nude, including Amy Adams' right. character, every woman in the scene. And she's pregnant. Right. Pregnant. Yeah. Um, that scene, to me, is one of the more interesting scenes in the movie, in its interpretation of what actually is going on there. Is that, is the, the, the cut how... Dodd is experiencing it and versus how Freddie would like to experience it. Is it how Dodd would want to experience it? If, if he were given the ability to act on all of his Freddie impulses and to use the cause to further along his animalistic nature where he could, you know, be with all of these women that are, that are in, you know, enamored with him. Is that what he would want to do? And then, cause immediately after that, you see him and Peggy in the bathroom and she's basically saying, I want you to stop drinking. You can't hang out with him. You don't, don't look at other women. And so clearly she saw something in that moment. And I, th I mean, obviously, and obviously the nudity was there to convey what Peggy saw or what Peggy was feeling, what Dodd was doing and how he was behaving in that scene. Maybe it was allowing us to take it to, you know, basically be able to visually see what Peggy was. Yeah, this is it, this is it's a really interesting scene. And I think that there are like several scenes in the film that, that, that do this kind of thing and, and where Freddie is our point of view character. Right. I mean, really throughout sure. the whole film, right? right? right. And, and so we see we see that scene from not just Freddie's point of view, but from his angle, from where he's sitting, right? right? And so, I mean, this kind of like upward angle, but also just barely above the ground. Right? 
And when it cuts there, Dodd also makes that motion where he sort of grabs his nose and like pulls his ear, which right. is this signal to Freddie to go make me some more hooch, right? Right, right. It, which is basically Prudhoe. I mean, he's making jailhouse wine, right? <laughs> right. He's making poison, right? Well, well I mean, look, look al- alcohol is a sort of neurotoxin in general, right? But we need to like get into them. So I've always, I always viewed it sort of from from Freddie's point of view that this is sort of we're seeing the embodiment of kind of how Freddie sees everything which is not to be prudish but from a level of kind of depravity right, right. and, and from a, to a, the a first carnal well. lust right I mean the, the first the, we're introduced to Freddie by him pouring booze into a coconut and then you know essentially having the, sex with a with a sand, sand mermaid right and yeah, then or, or jerking, sand woman sorry right, yeah. jerking off into the ocean kind yeah. of thing so yeah um, but I also think this gets what you were saying I, th- I think it also represents how Don would like to see th- or like to experience things which then connects to how Peggy sees the two of them together. Cause she sees Dodd make that like motion of like, make me some more hooch, Freddie, let's have some fun, right? And so that's, that's then her coming to him saying, I don't want to find out about anything else that you do, right, outside of, outside of us. Right, um, right. And so, I mean, I think, I think it's, it's all very kind of interconnected and really, I mean, obviously skillfully done by PTA, but, but in a, in a way that, does raise this question of how is this scene connected between the three of them and then how does that dynamic change yeah it's just interesting because it's it the 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 scene is so seemingly out of place in in the movie i I mean clearly it has intention but it but it does seem like that that's the first that's the first scene you really see where there are fantastical elements that are being being shown here the other one in my experience was the scene where once freddie has proven himself to be uncontrollable and and then comes back into the fold and amy adams then steps up and is really more part of his adjustment or whatever they call it i can't remember the exact terminology in the film they use what processing yeah. in the film in, which may be in exactly scientology it's auditing okay there so it's a little different it's the same i mean it's the same <laughs> and so but then she's the, the scene where he's looking at her and you're just seeing her face and she's saying you know what color are my eyes and now make them green or now make them black and then her eyes turn to black that's an interesting it's an interesting um and it's kind of brilliant on on pta's part that that it's her that's doing that that it's now the the processing that that philip seymour hoffman does at the time is more with Rami malik and river you know river and um joaquin you know speaking to one another and and trying yeah. to get a rise out of one another um, but that that scene where she seemingly now like really putting the pins to him and like seeing if he's going to be a part of this thing and seeing how much they can control him, and it and the control really comes from her and not Dodd. And it, today that that is an interesting you know I don't know. Yeah, no, I mean she controls all of it. I mean really she reels that leash back in when she needs to. Right. I mean she has Dodd on a sort of choker chain and will sort of snap it when when need be and I mean, she yeah, she really is in control and i think that i mean how how different is it from any kind of powerful relationship whether it's like you know i mean you know like a tammy faye baker or um you know first ladies in in politics um of, of these of of um, women usually in a, in a very good way, <laughs> like, like right, con- right, controlling things, and and clearly, 
Amy Adams character Amy Adams's character has has good intentions but also wants to maintain the con and wants to maintain yeah she's never the, seen I mean clearly the time that the movie is set she's not going to be able to take the forefront of this movement right, right. she's not going to be able to be the face of it she understands that right. and she understands that she's part of a charismatic she understands that she's part of a relationship or she's in a relationship with a charismatic man which would then lead one to believe that infidelity and and that that type of thing, especially in the forties and fifties, was on the table for those types of people. That's why she comes to him and says, "Look, I don't want to know about what you do." When it was put up with, I mean, uh, yeah, forties, fifties. This is post-war America. Divorce is not um, a big thing, right? I don't think fifty percent of marriages end in divorce like it does like like it does now, right? So so there was more. Whether those are unhappy marriages or whether that she's just you know again like tolerating you know this thing because what, she doesn't know where else to go at that point. Right? He's he's bringing in the cash. People want to see him, not her. People want to talk to him, not her. People are inviting him and by extension them like to their big fancy houses and. Right, right, and clearly he is, he he has to be the front, right? I mean, and and to that extent. It, it, she allows that to happen. It's, so going back to the the idea of Paul Thomas Anderson's films and and in the discussion the the the, the balance between master and subservient or master and, ment- and mentee. Yeah, men, I mean, it feels like mentor and mentee, right? right I mean, yeah. and, and look, I mean, I know you're going you're going to be screening Heart Eight or Sydney tonight. Tonight, right? yes. Um, I watched it earlier, and you really see. I mean, that's what that movie is. I mean, so blatantly that 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 Philip Baker Hall is is taking John C. Riley under his wing to teach him something, so he can sort of grow and be become someone else. And you see that in Boogie Nights. You see that in Magnolia. You see that in not so much Punch Drunk Love, but you still see it in a way in There Will Be Blood. There's always the, the you have men in positions of power and men who have lost their way in some kind of way looking for acceptance and looking for for help in all those films but you also see this i think by extension family right i mean right. i mean this is not like you know, a new revelation to anyone who's seen a Paul <laughs> Thomas Anderson movie right but but this idea of a family and dysfunctional family and and you have that here too and there's always i mean phoenix's character freddy almost takes the place of Jesse Plemons as son. Right, right absolutely. And, and for a minute, does take place as favored son. Um, and, I, I, and I think that's part of what, in the movie, that's what draws Dodd to that. I think he clearly understands that Plemons is who Plemons is. He can't get rid of him, but he's clearly... One of the best actors of his generation. Weirdly enough, yeah. And this was Plemons coming directly off of Friday Night Lights. Friday Night Lights. So, yeah. and, and really, he has given nothing to do in this movie. I mean, like, he looks good. No. I think he's I think he's hired because he has a passing resemblance to Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah. Um, and, and that, which is not to denigrate his acting ability. Like, I mean, he's he's great. He's good in what in the in the scene that he has. Um, and that scene between him and, and Phoenix, where he's and Phoenix is just like, do something, do anything. You know, yeah. that's a it, it, that's a great scene. But clearly, what Dodd there's a lot of aspects to 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 Freddie that Dot is is drawn to, and I do I I do agree that the that had it all worked out, it, it, and Freddie would have come around to the cause and and fully bought in. He could have been what what Plemons was supposed to be to to, to Dot. Yeah, you know what I also think is interesting <clears throat> about about this film and about 
I think PTAs movies in general is that these characters do not change very much. I mean, they change like like this much. And and again, this is an audio format. No one can see me like <clears throat> making 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 the symbol for like very little. But they but they don't change. They are kind of who they are. And there's maybe minor adjustments, but I mean, Freddie at the end is still Freddie, right? I mean, Dodd and Peggy are still kind of who they were at the beginning. Freddie may have gained uh, a little more independence or understanding, but not much. I think what Freddie gains by the end of the film is an understanding, a little bit better understanding of himself. Because you see him, and it's a little on the nose, the last woman that he's with at the bar, her name is Wen. So it's a little Uh, bit, it's a little bit twee at that point. I know we've used that term to talk about Paul Thomas Anderson's other movies. But that sense that... he, he goes to England, brings Dodd the Cools, and is listening to the same bullshit story that he's heard across the entirety of the film. At that point, Freddie realizes that the cause is no different than the Navy, no different than anything else he's experienced. And now he can he can get past that window that he's that he sees through that he's beyond the side the, the, on the side of so in the, the exercise where he's going from the wall to the window from yeah. the wall to the window to the wall to the window he's butting up against the cause he's violently reacting against it just like he did in the military and in this sense he's past this he under at least at the very least at the end of this movie he's gone towards something I think he's made the most growth out of all of this, clearly. He's, he's had the biggest arc in this sense. So I think where and he's he went, meant to. Right? Of course. And I think so where he grows is a sense of self that he did not have before he met the cause. And it wasn't that the cause necessarily brought that out in him. It just showed him that maybe all of these constructs in society and everything else are bullshit and that you have to find what makes you, you. And if it's a matter of connecting with somebody on a, you know, sexual or intimate or emotional, whatever basis, Freddie is still going to be true to Freddie. Um, but he doesn't have to continually bash his head against the wall to try to fit into something that he does not understand or engage in these kind of systems. Right. Because it- at the end of the day, and no offense to anyone who may or may not be listening, right? But a, a structure, a system like the military is not so different from a system or a structure like organized religion. Right? You're right. given a set of rules to follow, and 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 you better not not follow them. Yeah, yeah. Right? And 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 Freddie has found out I do not belong in these systems in any kind of system like this, right? And so he's going to go out and he's just going to be in this broader system where he can be chaotic in that way, which yeah. is who he is. And, and I think I think he yes I, I think that you know he sees that he like I said I think the idea of him being with the woman at the end is a sense that he can function in this world in whatever way that he needs to function. That he doesn't need some sort of guiding principle that that is misaligned with how he wants to live his life. Um, so do you, so going yeah. back to that, um, going back to that, so Dodd's, how do you feel about the cause in general? I mean, do you think, so coming into this film when I first watched it, and this was when it came out, I think this had two things going against it. And I think this is why you see, or why you saw at the time that maybe critical and public reaction to it was 
a little less than enthusiastic. And I and I think, you know, obviously with any Paul Thomas Anderson film, you're, there's going to be people that are dyed-in-the-wool fans that are going to love his movies. This one... I think was, you know, clearly three Oscar nominations. Paul Thomas Anderson's not nominated. Going back to my point, I think the the fake breakdown of Joaquin Phoenix's persona in real life, and I'm not there, that whole Casey Affleck thing that happened, and the idea that this was going to be some sort of expose against Scientology, and this was going to be a real takedown of the tenants and of L. Ron Hubbard and... I just remember when this first came out and when it was talked about when it was being made that, oh, Paul Thomas Anderson is making a movie about Scientology. This is not what this movie is about. It's only tangentially um, associated. And, of course, it uses a lot of, like, Paul, you know, L. Ron Hubbard's son was much like Jesse Plemons. Right. He, He believed that L. Ron was making all of this up. Obviously, the sea, you know, being on the sea and all. all so, yeah. but again, this was this was not a this was not even really a, uh, a study on on cult behavior. Really, it, it was it was more of a enigmatic leader that, it, like I said, the story is about two men. It, it, it's a PTA and, movie. It's right. got the same. I mean. <laughs> So last time we were here, I talked about like Hemingway and that like one thing, right? right. We all have one thing that we can <laughs> write about. You know, we're lucky to have that one thing. I mean, this is this is kind of PTA's one thing. I mean, it really. Whether you want to extend that further into family, in every movie that he's done, even Inherent Vice, there's a loose collective right. of people that all know each other, right? I mean, and and so, you, you know how sort of media and people talk and ways to sort of gin up excitement or conversation and so like i remember seeing it and i don't remember that conversation around too much um and i didn't go into it like looking for that i guess um and and some of like the influences i guess he used some of the like unused scenes from there will be blood Right, but also like Jason Robards' Navy stories that he's holding right. on Magnolia, um, the Pynchon novel V, um, and you, then yeah, some of some of L. Ron Hubbard stuff. Yeah. Have you seen Let There Be Light, the John Huston documentary? No, but that so, I've seen clips from. Yeah, he takes so a lot of the beginning is from the There Be Light. So when you're yeah. Yeah. when Joaquin Phoenix is out processing, when Freddie's out processing out of the military, a lot of that is from Let There Be Light. And Let There Be Light, it's available on YouTube um, in pretty good quality, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's John Huston documentary, John Huston, Treasure of Sierra Madre, great American cinema f- filmmaker. This is a documentary that he put together uh, exploring the effects of PTSD on, on military men. It was 1946, right? Um, right. Yeah. yeah, and this was this was a thing that was put together with in conjunction with the with the U.S. military and the U.S. military. Which it was dumb, it was like we're not gonna release this. <laughs> this is a terrible right. recruitment right. film. Like, and, and it, it it is <laughs> come join the Navy, get PTSD. <laughs> right. <laughs> so there's there are things that are taken directly out of it. So the the in, so the Rorschach test is in Let There Be Light. The and and when and when you see the Rorschach test in Let There Be Light. The, the gentleman who's responding to the the one that Freddie says it's an upside down penis 
he says that there's two ladies. So you, I kind of got like, oh, shit, are they actually going to do some sort of like sexual comedy? <laughs> but that was all. It was just two ladies standing on a rock, which was the interpretation of the of the person gotcha. that was looking gotcha. towards And what Freddie actually says rhymes with rock. <laughs> right. So it's pretty much the same thing. <laughs> uh, there is also a scene. Um, there's also a scene where one of the military men talk about nostalgia and they basically the doors stuff is pulled directly from that right and this it's it's heartbreaking in let there be watch is a hard it's a hard hard it's a hard hour to watch just because you're watching men who are clearly damaged by the traumas of war these men are stuttering they can't some of them can't talk some of them can't walk and they're not just and they're all mental issues and so the film is really it's meant to be this kind of like sweeping Come to the military hospital and we will perform hypnosis on you and we will care about you and we will make you better. So at the end of this eight week stint in this military hospital, all these men are now playing, you know, they're all coming back together and they've re- they're reconnecting with their families and they've all. It's an interesting look at how mental health at least was being how the army was or you know how the navy was presenting that it was addressing mental health because there there are a lot of like there are a lot of masculine things going on in this movie that you wouldn't have expected in 1946 like actual caring and actual talking about right. feelings and right. talking about how coming back you know getting back into society and 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 you know the 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 message that the military is giving in this movie is that they and, and not to, not to say that I disagree, that I that I don't that I don't believe it but they were given that they're very open and caring and, you know, responsive to these problems that these men are having. But you're watching men who are, you know, essentially mumbling through a film. You know, they're they're not making eye contact with the camera. It, it, it obviously sweeps up in the last 10, 15 minutes, but it's it's not it's not easy to watch at all. But but yes, he, so he took a lot of that how Freddie was being handled when he was in the military coming out of it as part of that story there it, this relates to the idea of the cause um at least in the premise that they mean well or maybe mean well or appear to mean well like we're here to help you it's it's interesting <laughs> from a perspective that, 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 you know going into it and, and because about this time is when Scientology and the, the information about Scientology is getting out, right? This, and so people are starting to come into this knowledge of how dangerous, how aggressive, how life destroying Scientology can right. be. So I, I think there were, there's an appetite to bring this seemingly rich religion. When I say rich, I mean financially rich religion down a peg or two because it just seems like it's just so manipulated from the outside and it's so like the the it's so to the point like i get I mean the manipulative is still still the right word there where you bring people in on this on this the guise of of self-help and right. self-realization and getting rid of all of these traumas that 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 people have and getting past them and, and being able to do it on your own and 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 to that extent it's it's a powerful message it's just once you get past the first layer of the onion and you start realizing that there's many many layers and they're very very expensive and and also, make you cry and right yeah. and to the extent where you know Scientology is looking for you to and again if there are Scientologists listening which I'm sure there are not <laughs> Feel free to email me <laughs> right. and let me know if I'm wrong. 
but to this extent of of, the, of these religions, and you saw this with the Nexium cult and these and all of these right, cults, right. right? Where they 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 make you confess these, you know, you make you confess these terrible things that you may or may have done, or these things that you hold as trauma that you would be embarrassed that they got out under the guise of and the auspice of, of auditing you and helping you. But then it also it's being recorded and it can be used against you. Once and so you're, it's blackmail, if right, you don't, right? Right. If you don't play along, right. if, you're, if you ever want to get out, you're, you're definitely you know you have all these things that are now. At the yeah. at the whim of some some other nefarious organization. When was the South Park episode where they just like ran around saying Elron like the entire time? <laughs> um, I, you know, it's hard for me to. It's hard. So the master came out in 2012. This would have so like Tom Cruise's couch jumping thing. All of that would have come out well before all of right. this. Right. Right. And so again, that's why I think there was an appetite to kind of bring all of this down a little yeah, bit. And I, I mean, I think I bring that up because I. I don't remember. I don't remember going into this film thinking like, "Ooh, right, a Scientology expose," and I don't remember watching it and really thinking that much about Scientology. I mean, I know it's there. I know the I know the beats are there, and the, I know the tenants are there. I know the character is there, but it it just I don't care. I, right. I don't. I guess I don't care about the Scientology aspect of it. I mean, and to that extent, I would. I, I almost wish that it had never been brought. Like if. It, Paul Thomas Anderson plays so many things so close to the vest anyway that right. that it would just it just seemed like it doesn't make sense to even mention it in a sense where you could have just washed it off as a as a generic cult figure. It right. doesn't have to like it's like you don't mention it. It's not he's not L. Ron Hubbard. So this is the same problem I have with Nomadland. She doesn't need to mention Amazon. <laughs> anyway, right. that's right. a sure. side tangent, but, yeah. but that's a real problem for me in that movie. Okay, anyway. But right, <laughs> he doesn't need to to be that explicit about it. He doesn't it's it's a little weird. Winking. The, the, you see, I'm, I'm, I gave the script to Tom Cruise. He's cool with it. And well, and see, that's the thing too. I think there was a lot that was being discussed. Of okay, well, you did a movie with with Magna, You did a movie with Tom Cruise, and clearly he is. And, and you're and you're evidently friends with him. You know, you went to eyes. You went to the the set of Eyes Wide Shut, and and asked him to be in your movie. That Supposed was him in the mask in the sort of in the corner in that one <laughs> in the orgy scene. Okay, he played the Lily Sobieski role. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so there was a lot being made of like oh what's your friendship going to be like and I, I'm going to screen the film for you ahead of time and again what is the point there you don't need that connection for people who have already made it you don't even need to be that to be that part of the discussion don't don't put that pin I, I don't know you paint yourself into somewhat of a corner and when you and then when your film is released you really don't Take a dig. The only dig that's made at the cause at all is is during the dinner scene, where you know the one the, the, the gentleman's asking Excuse about me. Luke. Excuse me, right? Which is Excuse a great me. scene. It's a, it's a fantastic scene. We also get to see, yeah, this scene is it's, it's brilliant because we get to see that guy, you know, in a, in a very polite but aggressive way, bring up these these problems and these questions about about the cause, and then we get to see Philip Seymour Hoffman just lose it. Right, right? Just, and just call him pig fuck. Right. And and it's such a great moment to see that character and what happens when you push back against that character. What would I want to go back to this scene again, but I want to ask a yeah. question. What yeah. would PTA be without Philip Seymour Hoffman? And again, I know he's directed he's directed performances out of other people that have been But he's been so standout in almost everything he's done with him. He, I mean, look, I, I just, I rewatched Boogie Nights recently and that Scotty J character is, that's a, that is a nothing part 
Yeah. But it in, should be. in it Hoffman's should be. hands, and I know that PTA wrote it for Hoffman after seeing him in Cinema Woman. Right? I mean, I know that was sort of like where the where the sort of inspiration for that came from. So right. Like, um, but none of that's on the page in the script. None of that, like you know, oh, no. th- that sweaty, like trembling, like creepy thing that he does there is none of that's on the page. That. That the way that Scotty J, that the scene where they all are buying those Italian shirts together, and and, and Scotty J's and he, shirt just doesn't fit well, him well. And he can't well. button his pants. And it and he's just kind of like okay. shrugging his shoulder, but like so depressed. <laughs> like, like it's man that that whole his his character. I mean, I don't obviously it doesn't make the film, but just adds such a great layer to it. Where if you take someone like Thomas Jane. His character does does nothing with that. And again, he's not, got a great mustache. Come on, absolutely, absolutely. But he does nothing with that. You could have put no. anybody in there. There's yeah. no reason Thomas Jane needs. And again, Thomas Jane's not like it, obviously he's not an A-list actor necessarily, but he's a name that you. Know. I think he could beat you up though. So I, I don't know. I would bring. Him I mean, maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe not. I no, it's fine. That's okay. I've look. I'm more than willing to spill blood. To he was in the Punisher, right? right? Wasn't he the Punisher? He was not. Yeah, he was Before, one of the Punishers. Yes. Well, that's what I mean. But okay. <laughs> Dolph Lundgren was it was my was Sorry. my Punisher. Oh, okay. This is like this is like James Bond okay. discussions. Who John, John Byrne falls mine, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, but no, I mean I think I think that certain direct, directors like PTA find these guys, right? And well, in Philip Baker Hall. I mean, think about too what Philip Baker Hall has sort of brought what they brought to I think to each other. Mm-hmm. I think for a long time, maybe before the PTA stuff, we'd be like, who's that? And now it's like, that's Philip Baker Hall. Right, right. But I think, yeah, some of these directors find these certain actors that they work so well with that they just transform in a way each other. Yeah, I, I, I would, <clears throat> I'd like to know what, Philip Seymour Hoffman's so good in Heart Aid as well. That whole scene <laughs> is so brilliant. And it, and that, that you you juxtapose those two roles, right, where he's the, the hot shot in Heart Eight, and then he comes right back and plays Scotty J in Boogie Nights. And it's a completely different, like, just physicality. And he's yeah. the same guy. It's the same. He's, you know, kind of, you know, pudgy. and yeah. But he just carries that with a, such a confidence in, in Heart Eight and such a lack of confidence and just... But then look how he's in Punchstruck Love, too. Right. I mean, that's that's like another variation on that in a different level of confidence. Well, like Mission Impossible 3, where he's that, that and again, going going completely off the, you know, off the reservation as far as as types of films we're watching. But that there's a scene in Mission Impossible 3 where they're trying to get Philip Seymour Hoffman's character out of something. I can't remember exactly what it was, but they spill they spill stuff on his shirt. They're at this big party. Right. Yeah. And he's and she's like, well, "Why don't you come back to my, you know, and I'll I'll Oh, you know, I'll, I'll clean your shirt. And he's like, well, what would we be doing, you know, while my shirt is off? And yeah. it's such this, like, Philip Seymour, yeah, he's a good-looking guy, and but, like, he doesn't, he's not your traditional sexy Hollywood man, but that role, when he says that, you're just like, ooh, man, that is, like, he carries that, he carries himself with such... I don't know. You really like pointing out how people don't have traditional attractive <laughs> qualities. That's, that's every episode I'm going to find right. out about something. Find someone to sort of make a comment. Well, you know, he's not traditionally. And I can just go, 
You mean like doesn't have striking cheekbones? And <laughs> <laughs> it all just comes tall. back to six pack abs for me. That's all it is. <laughs> I have eight. I'm kidding. <laughs> That's why we're doing the podcast. That's why. There you go. <laughs> but but it must be nice to have that type of just kind of bullpen player that that you can count on to pick up whatever role you like. Because again, Coming you could have given you could have given him any role in Punch Drug Love, and he yeah. would have killed all of them. And and when I was watching this, when I was watching the Master, I was like, I don't know why. And not to, not to say that Daniel Day Lewis wasn't great, but why didn't you put Philip Seymour Hoffman in the Daniel Day Lewis role in There Will Be Blood? So this is interesting, right? Because um, the Master comes right after There Will Be Blood, and you and I talked a bit. After after the screening recently of There Will Be Blood about how kind of hard of a film it is to watch. I, th- I mean, I think There Will Be Blood is a challenging film. Not that I mean, uh, it's brilliant, right? But it is it's it's a little tougher to sit through. The Master I find is infinitely more watchable, even if I don't like it as much. Right, right. Right. And so like Then I'm with you there. I but I don't know. I, I mean I'm surprised that see, I don't think Philip Seymour Hoffman fits in There Will Be Blood. He could have he could have been the Paul Dano role, I guess. Um, I think you need I think you need someone to be <clears throat> the Paul Dano role fits so perfectly with him because once you realize he's twins, then it be, then it becomes like I don't, I don't think you could have Philip Seymour Hoffman is so unique looking. Paul Dano right. kind of could blend, right? right. You, you could walk past Paul Dano. I don't think you would turn your head necessarily unless you were a huge Paul Dano fan. <laughs> but once you realize that wildlife that, was a good movie. <laughs> once you realize that they're twins, then then it becomes a little bit more of a because that that whole that whole thread kind of confuse that it's meant yeah, to throw you off, right? Right, it, right, it right, 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 right. Um I I I I disagree. I think that he would fit. I know sure. his, I know his physica- I know his physicality would have been a little bit different than Danny because Danny Day Lewis plays that really kind of tall, lanky, just and, and like he looks like he's hungered for oil his entire life and that, that he's lived with a singular purpose. Yeah. Um but I but I think the passion that that Hoffman brings to Dodd is very, very similar to the passion that that Lewis brings oh, to absolutely. Plain sure. Absolutely. And there I think I think they're very, I mean, clearly they're very similar characters yeah. to one another. Yeah, I mean, they, they, they're they variations on a theme there. I mean, you know, as as those characters go. Yeah, I, I look. I mean, I think I think that Philip uh, Seymour Hoffman. I almost <laughs> almost said Philip Baker Hoffman. <laughs> Philip Seymour Hoffman can could have done anything that he wanted, any played any role that he wanted to. Um, I just I have a hard time. I think seeing someone else in that role as opposed to Daniel Day Lewis. But again, I mean, that's. Right, you know, reverse that, and it'd be the other way, right? So, <laughs> right, as so, you yeah. see, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's like I couldn't see Daniel Day Lewis playing Gunther in a Most Wanted Man, right? Yeah, sure, I mean, so, so, right, right. So, no, yeah, no, I mean, right. you know, <laughs> 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 um, uh, which was his last role, wasn't it? Yeah, mm-hmm. unfortunately, mm-hmm. that that is. That is one of the ridiculous tragedies that we don't have that that gentleman around anymore to 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 give us his gift. I know it sounds yeah. self serving, and, and obviously there's <laughs> he was much more than just an actor to provide us. You know, right, he was right, not a. Right. But it, but you know it would have been interesting to see how or what else he would have done at this point too because 
let's see, when was he when was he born? How old was he when he died? He was like forty six when he died. Yeah, it's crazy. So and that was that was less than ten years ago. So he'd be mid fifties. I mean, imagine like what else he would have done at this point, kind of growing into an even more mature, I think, actor. Because right. I mean, he hadn't done. What's he known for? Capote. Um, Probably his his roles in in PTA movies. Um, I mean, happiness. Twister. Twister, yeah, yeah. Happiness, I, I can't get some of those scenes out of my head, and it, it bothers me. I mean, Lester Bangs, fuck Lester Bangs, right? <laughs> um, I think he would have had even more and more. Well, and even take, like, the, the, the films that he was in that were garbage, like Along Came Polly. He's, he's, right. he's the only reason to watch that movie. Right. He's great in it, and if you could have just cut the movie down to his scenes, it would have been a masterpiece. It would have been great. But alas, here we are. Uh, it, you know, and, and the the things that he led that were the smaller independent things like Love Liza, um, mm-hmm. he was so brilliant in owning Mahoney, which yeah. no one saw. Right. Uh, right. right. And, and just about a compulsive gambler, he's a bank... He's, you know, he, he works in a bank and he's writing all these loans to himself to cover his gambling debts. And he doesn't even really give a shit about gambling. He just, he doesn't give a shit about winning. He just, he just loves the, the, the rush of gambling. He's so good in that. It's so all of these movies that he made kind of mid nineties where he was just the lead in, you know, go back to like his beginning roles where he was in when a man loves a woman with Meg Ryan and Andy Garcia. Oh, He's amazing in that, and just a small little. He's a he's in Meg Ryan's Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, class or you know, class, you know, her group. <laughs> it's a support group, right? right yeah, and you, where you learn how to be an anonymous alcoholic. <laughs> Which, ironically, <laughs> not really anonymous. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, uh, you know, I don't think you know. We're not but, breaking any new ground to say that it's sad that he's yeah. no longer here. Um, and no longer making films. Back to the master. Yeah. Uh, it, it, so, what's your overall take? I mean, it, yeah. how do you feel about it? Where does it fit within sure. the Paul Thomas Anderson uh, selection of films? So I'm trying. To, I, I I think it's. I enjoy it. Right. I again, like, I find it really watchable. I find it infinitely watchable. Um, in a way that again, like, there will be blood isn't quite that watchable, even though you know, I prefer There Will Be Blood. I think it's a better movie. The performances, I think, are great, right? And, and, you, and you touched on it. Three, three nominations, three Academy Award nominations for the actors, right? Um, that's the thing, I think, that, that keeps me engaged. You know, the, the, the story, the themes, again, are a variation on, on earlier themes. I think it's another one of these movies that it, it fits well with There Will Be Blood because of the performances because of the score because of the way it's shot right the way that it takes the the water wake scene from lady of shanghai right, right. the way that it uses certain aspects of nightmare alley right to kind of convey these ideas i i, I like it i like it a lot um i don't like it more than boogie nights i don't like it more than there will be blood i don't like it more than punch drunk love I don't like it more than Magnolia. So I guess that's kind of where it sits (laughs) (laughs) after those. Um, But yeah, I mean, I find it, I think it's good. It's better than fine. It's better than The Departed. (laughs) I I think it's, I think it's a great movie. Yeah. It's weird to me that it is all of those things. And I find it somewhat lacking for me in in a sense where I I think all of the pieces are there. I think as a film, as a whole, 
there's just something that doesn't quite doesn't quite resonate with me. And I think sure. it's an interesting one-two punch. And maybe had it come before there will be blood, and you saw it as a precursor to there will be blood, rather than coming down off of the what is clearly his masterpiece, right? It's, yeah. And, and, and no one's masterpiece is going to be their most watchable movie. It's not right. going to be the film that you go back to over right. and over again. Right. And and I could be pulling that out of my ass, and it could be some sort of film snob statement. Well, that's like but, your opinion, man. <laughs> right. Uh, but, I mean, There Will Be Blood is a three-hour magnum opus that that is just, that is, it, it, and again, I know it's not quite three hours, but it, it is, it's one of the, I, you know, it's one of the best American films that's made in the past two decades. I yeah. mean, well, I, I agree. I, I completely agree. And, and, and it, you know, it, it, you can say that it rests on Daniel Day-Lewis's shoulders, but it usually, but you're getting, you're getting good performances out of everybody in that yeah. movie. Um, I think clearly the master is a step down. And I think then it, as it's seen in his repertoire, you go directly into inherent vice, which is, I think, by all accounts, his his worst film, sure. and it was clearly the letdown. I think people were like, looking back, you look back at that middle film between what was so great and what was clearly his least film. And I know that there's people who like that movie. I, I didn't go back and revisit it during the two weeks since we last recorded. That was the one that I just I couldn't like bring myself to kind of get back into. I, I really despised it when I saw it in the theater. I, I and I, to be honest, I haven't revisited it since then, so I don't know how I feel about it now. But. I just, I remember thinking, well, okay, the master was kind of a step down from there will be blood. Now we've gone down to inherent vice. Now can Paul Thomas Anderson pull himself out of this kind of quagmire of he was this great American voice and now maybe he's kind of hit a lull. Um, But to that extent, I I, I do like the movie. I do. It's not, but I agree with you. I don't find it as engaging as his, you know, his second, third, fourth and fifth films. You know, I don't. And it could be mistaken, which where um, Punch Drunk Love clearly falls before this, right? So it's Boogie Nights, it's Punch Drunk Love. No, Boogie Nights, Boogie Nights Magnolia, Magnolia, Punch, Punch Drunk, Drunk Love, Love, and then There Will Be Blood, yeah. right? So I don't think, I think those, you know, those are clearly his, his um, you know, his sweet spot of where he's really making mo- movies that he's, those are the movies that he intended to make out, to make when he started out. Those are, the mo- those are the movies he had in his back pocket when he started to become yeah. a filmmaker. I, 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 it's clearly technically more proficient than even some of those films that we've mentioned that are more enjoyable. The, I, I, I don't believe I saw this. I, I know I didn't see this in 70 millimeter when it came out. Yeah. Um, I don't know exactly where it screened for that. I would have liked to have seen it. I would have loved to have seen it on, on a big screen like that. I think it would have, I think that would have enhanced the experience quite a bit, but I think ultimately just some of the, the things that I, it's a, it's a, it's just more, it's a, the story is more difficult to, to get through. And I think, I think the story asks a lot of the viewer to kind of understand where Freddie is. It doesn't give you a lot. I need to be handheld, but like it doesn't quite put you to where there's a satisfying conclusion to any of this. Right. And I don't think there has to be, but I think at least to me, it sounds like maybe you're asking for a little more three dimensionality of, of the character of Freddie, Uh, maybe a little more heft in the story. Yeah, I think so. I, I think I'm, and again, I think I, I think a little bit more of a, a, a duality. I think I, I, because here's the thing, where I think I kind of coming into this is that I think the Dodd character is so, and, and Philip Seymour Hoffman is so uh, magnetic and, he, and he's so engaging. And, and it's, and that's the story when I'm watching this movie, I, I'm drawn to. Yeah. And I think that's kind of intentional. Yeah. Obviously, obviously, we're drawn to where Freddy is mm-hmm. drawn. But we're left, we're beginning in the end, we're back with Freddy. And we're, 
obviously clearly always kept at a distance kind of from Freddie. We're, we're not meant to, to really want to be him or to accept his, you know, you know, his, his failings as a human being meant to see that as a, you know, as, as his growth. I, I, I don't know. It's, it's to me like the, 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 I think the interesting story is kind of somewhat left on the table and I understand why you can't, you can't make that movie. You can't, you can't tell both stories. You've got to tell one or the other. Right. But unfortunately with Philip Seymour Hoffman in that role, and being presented on the posters, and, and it, you 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 are drawn to that character. I mean, he he kind of steals the movie, right? I mean, right. His performance takes over and steals that movie. I mean, not in a bad way, but like you said, we're meant to sort of want to uh, sympathize with Freddy, right? Freddy is us in a way, the viewer. Right? We're supposed to be sort of next to him walking through it, and like we're like, no, we want to go over here. <laughs> I want to go hang out with this guy, right? Yeah. And going back to that scene that we talked about before where, you know, the, the, the cause is being called out, <laughs> Freddie in that scene, up until this point, Freddie is being completely manipulated by the cause. Yeah. He's, he's and not even manipulated, he's just openly, willingly go along with yeah. whatever is there, right? He sits at the dinner when, when Amy Adams brings him to the, to the breakfast table and, and he sits at the dinner and listens to, at the wedding, and he listens to how Philip Seymour Hoffman is essentially talking about how he captured and wrangled Freddy. Right. And he's talking about, I grabbed the dragon and I wrapped it up and now I'm, listen- now I'm watching it be the dragon. And Freddy doesn't understand this story at all. He doesn't understand that it's about him. And, and he's clapping along. He is childish in all of his actions when he throws the the tomato or apple at the, at, you know, at the naysayer who's asking about leukemia. And so it's, like I said, it's an interesting and it's a challenging film. It's a, it's a, that's a challenging way to present a movie where you've, you've got to, you've got to find yourself in, you've got to find your growth as a, as a viewer while you're watching, you know, you're trying to figure out what this guy you don't really like, and you're trying and, and you're being drawn in. Right. You're trying, yeah, obviously he's being, he's presenting behavioral traits that we wouldn't want to obviously emulate. Do you want to touch on Phoenix's performance at all? Or do you want to move into something else? No, no, I, I'm I'm fine with that. Uh, okay. I, well, I just I mean, this was so this was Phoenix's like first role after the I'm still here, right? Wasn't that what it was yeah, called? Yeah, I'm right? still here. Or yeah, because I'm not here. It was the, the Dylan. Todd Haynes Dylan? Yeah, film, right. But look uh, at this. This run to me was like really interesting okay. to look at. So Phoenix goes from 2005 Walk the Line, 2007 We Own the Night, again in 2007 Reservation Road, 2008. Two lovers, right? So two James Gray movies right. in there, and then he does 2010. I'm still here. 2012, The Master. 2013, The Immigrant. Another James Gray movie, right? I mean, I I find this a really kind of wild, interesting sort of Phoenix span. I mean, I'm not a big fan of Walk the Line, but I, I'm just not a big fan of biopics right. in general. You right? can't just, after you've right? seen I mean, Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story. You can't watch those again. Have you not seen that? No. Oh, you no, have to watch. No, I I mean I I. Yeah. <laughs> I have, I have, and this is, uh, I'm going to try not to come off like a, like a giant sure. film no, snob, like, no, you know, it's, like it's a okay. giant dickhead, right? But I, I, I sometimes just don't go in for those comedies. Um, what was the, I mean, I love John C. Riley. I think he's, I think he's so funny, but I think he's, he's even funnier in a role like, um, uh, Reed from Boogie Nights, where sure, right, where he's just the, the character's dude, right? not trying to be funny. Right? I know Riley's <laughs> trying to be funny, but he's not, and it just it like plays so well. But when what was the uh, what was the NASCAR movie he was in? Uh, Ricky Bobby. Okay, yeah. the Ricky Bobby thing, uh, Step Brothers, stuff like that. I just I tend to sort of shy away from those, and and I'm someone who will quote the entire movie Airplane to you. 
Right. So it's, <laughs> I don't know what it is, but I just sort of, I just, I just kind of like don't, but, but yes. Right. I mean, Fair you, enough. you can't, but, but even I can't think of, of walk the line and then think of John C. Riley in that pose, like the shirtless pose for right. that, for that movie. So yes, there is that connection. But I'm more interested in like Phoenix in these like James Gray type, type movies, right. That are a little more. Yeah, uh, they're a little more artsy, a little more serious, a little more, I mean, like, pared down, too. And, and none of them really ever work. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> this is true. But that's, but, but that's James but, Gray. But, yeah. <laughs> that being said, I'm still a James Gray fan. Sure. Right? I, I like the attempt. Right. I mean. That, look, sometimes that's all you need, and I'm on board. No, right? absolutely. He fucking tried. <laughs> uh, I'll watch a guy strike out over a guy walking all day long. Absolutely. Okay. And to the extent of, like, I watch all kinds of shit cinema. In, right, in, in, right, in, in right, the sense right. that. Someone had an idea, and they put it to they put it to film. That that to me yeah. is half the battle, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, as far as his period, it really he is a such a strange actor. Like as far as like his career goes, and how this guy is actually a movie star. Uh, it just in, in the sense of like he was, you know, he did Gladiator, and and right. then and then did Walk the Line and won the Oscar. The it's interesting to me the the reinvention and the the fake breakdown story. Yeah, and because and I know that they were young. I know Casey Affleck was young. When has that ever worked for anyone? Right. When has that ever worked for a celebrity? When you tried to pull a Chris Gaines or like David Bowie? Yeah. Right. I mean, okay. And, but here's but see and here's what well, I, here's what I would say about about that. It's it's. And I'm jumping ahead of myself because I was going to bring this up later, but it's basically performance art, right? right? And, and performance art is really, at least in my sort of viewing opinion and my relationship with like performance art, it's something that's very much kind of of its time, right? And a lot of times it doesn't work, right? Right. Sometimes it, it does, but again, it typically only works within a certain kind of context. I, I loved I'm Still Here when it came out. I don't think it holds up, right? But no, but but I think like a lot of performance art, right? It 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 has to be in that context, right? And I I like I don't think that. Here's what I would say: I I think that I'm still here works because it's asking these questions about celebrity, about what am I doing, right? About being a trained monkey, right? About sure. trying something new, trying something different, right? Even though he's like, yeah, he's along for the ride, right? And, and but the commitment that he sort of like puts into this, right? I think I think is great. But again, like it doesn't work going back on like reviewing. I also think it questions this idea of truth, right? In this uh, no one can see me rolling my eyes, right? But in this kind of like postmodern sense of like what is truth, right? How do we sort of manipulate and shape truth? But so I think, look, I use this film. I was teaching a, a, a creative nonfiction workshop at Ohio State, and I used this film in conjunction with the Banksy film Exit Through the Gift Shop mm-hmm. as a way to examine these ideas of like, okay, what is truth? Who says so? Right? And, and look, I know there's an objective truth. That's not what I'm saying, right? Facts exist. I believe this, right? right? But, but also, like, we construct truths to make sense of our reality, right? 
this is not philosophy class right now. No, no, so, no, 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 I'm, I'm no, 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 I know. I'm just like, I don't mean to be I, like, my right? eyes are closed and I'm no, no. snoring, but I'm with you <laughs> yeah. 100%. Like, like, like most of the classes that I teach, right? No, um, this idea of sort of what is truth, how do we, sh- how do we use this idea of truth to sort of shape our reality and our, and our, and our perception of things, which, which again, I think is how truth is used now, right? Truth is just, well, that's just my truth. I mean, people say this shit. Well, that's my truth. I'm going to speak my truth. Again, I think that on one level, it's nonsense, but on another level, it's actually important to understand that. And I think that that's what I'm still here in a way trying to do, trying to get at, trying to attempt. Right. Again, like it doesn't, it doesn't work. But at the time I was like, oh, I totally see what's going. Okay. Right. Yeah. I, I'm with you. I just wish that the commitment level had been a little stronger. Yeah. Sure. It, it was turned over too quick and yeah. it was too much like, okay, well, they're doing this for a film, right? This yeah. is not an Andy Kaufman. I'm going to never tell you I'm Tony Clifton. I'm right. never going to give right. it. And I'm never going to say, I would have preferred them to do something. And again, that obviously speaks to Kaufman's brilliance and his and his just desire and ability to take abuse. And there's only one. <laughs> and right, no, I mean, there's, right. there's no, like, absolutely, really, right. there's only one Kaufman. And that's just... But to that to that performance art perspective, I think it needs to happen on a smaller scale. You know, I, I think I think it would have been, and I don't know how you do it. And I, I right, like I said, I appreciate right, the effort. Right. When if when it first came out too, I did, I did appreciate the effort. Yeah, but I think that it turned too quickly into. I don't think that they let their discomfort get to the point where it should have been. If you're going you, to try to make me convinced that that Joaquin Phoenix is going to try to be a real rapper and like lose himself and he's lost himself into the celebrity. Because, again, the real life aspect of it all then becomes because there were people that were really going through that. And, of course, I mean, right. not to not to put too much of a pop culture spin on any of this. But like if you look at some of the things that like Britney Spears was going through at the same sure. time, which was a legitimate mental breakdown sure. and that we all as a collective society took joy in <laughs> and and made fun of and and. I, I I agree with you. I get what they were trying to do, but I think it's too easy to then step in and step out of it for purposes that are. What is the what is the what's the end goal? What are you trying to do? Because again, you, if you're trying to tell me that I'm stupid and I'm trying to do something that I should be doing something different and that that might you know, right. look, I, I I'm totally on board. I'll buy into that. But you better commit to the to the act, right? You better commit right. to telling I mean, not because again, going back to your enclave and, and, and being happy and rich and whatever, and then bidding, putting this aside and taking it off as a, like, like you do a coat right. doesn't work for me. No, I 100% agree. Right. And that's like, that's the thing. Like, you look at it now and it doesn't, like, it doesn't hold up. We, we have these kind of questions like, what the fuck are you, what do you think you're doing, right? <laughs> Why do you think this is okay? Like you said, because people are actually going through this stuff. But at the time, we didn't have all of the capabilities to see some of those other things. Like we took joy in the Britney Spears downfall because of the paparazzi, because of how those images were delivered to us. They're delivered to us in a different way now, right? So we right. would never have that kind of collective, I and mean, we don't have that kind of collective joy now, right? I mean, we, I mean, the, the internet, got Britney out of uh, uh, conservatorship, yeah. right? I mean, so, but uh, yeah, I, I agree. And that's why it's such a piece of its time. And yeah, they didn't take it to the level of discomfort because they didn't have to, right? And I think that's that's where it really sort of falls down. And, and right, but it's but it's like- Aha, uh-huh, we're joking. Okay, let's go back and do movies again. 
It's exactly. Yeah. It's Jordan. Yeah. It's Jordan playing baseball. It's 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 Garth Brooks doing Chris Gaines. Like you can't tell. You can't. You can't get me invested in, in something when you can just fall back onto the thing that you're really really good at. Right. If, right. It, look, man. I would love nothing more if Garth Brooks was still making shitty Chris Gaines albums to this day. <laughs> Like, it, it, Chris Gaines had started a, a Nickelback or a Creed front band. Like, it was just, I mean, just being totally into it. How brilliant would that be? We would yes, be talking about yes, that shit yes, today. Yes, yes, as, Well, we are. Well, <laughs> right. But, I mean, legitimately, right, living in an alternate right. universe where Garth Brooks had, had split personalities, and he was Chris Gaines and Garth right. Brooks at the same time. Right. And, and really, like, just unapologetically looking, saying, this... I'm gonna fucking do this. Yeah. You would study it. Yeah. You would study this as a as a thing that exists, and it's and it's just a, a brilliant piece of commitment. It, that, it, that and it's and it's you going back to that Bowie point, right? Because that's what Bowie did, right? right. Okay, you know now I'm the thin white Duke, right? Now now we're gonna do Aladdin saying now I'm androgynous, now I'm this, right? And and I don't mean that in a like kind of joking. I mean because he did commit to all that, right? And and he's one of the few that could make that happen, and and like. We are studying that. I mean, now, right? right. I mean, so to to that extent, but yes, and 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 Andy Kaufman again. I mean, too. Just I mean, how uncomfortable did that guy make people, and how much dis- discomfort did he put himself through just for the sake of a bit? Yeah, <laughs> it was, I mean, brilliant. Yeah, and so this is why, right? I mean, the the, the Phoenix I'm still doesn't doesn't work. It doesn't doesn't hold up. I th- I think the. And maybe maybe this is a, a bad analogy, but I, I think the only ones who came close to doing it really, really well were Sasha Baron Cohen and maybe Nathan Fielder. Sure, sure, uh, yeah. Those guys okay. who are committing to yeah. the act, like where they're just. I mean, and again, I know yeah. Sasha Baron Cohen can can step out of the roles that he's creating. Right, um, right. But when he's doing it, he's doing it. He's not. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think. Last part on like I'm still here. I think you see the steam sort of run out of that film. I think you understand like by the end you're like oh, okay yeah you're just sort of playing a game because you because you can. Right? And it, it, I think it works better <clears throat> honestly had it been Casey Affleck. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I get the idea that yeah. it's a bigger star coming off of a huge you know coming off of a huge Oscar win and, right. and but at that point it almost becomes more disconcerting that that this person really is in, in distress right. right and I think. To that extent, like you always thought Andy Kaufman was in distress. Like you never, yes. you never put a finger on Andy Kaufman. Because he probably was. I mean, yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. He probably. I mean, and and to that extent, like you, Phoenix was in Gladiator. Phoenix was in Walk the Line. <laughs> like if you want to destroy your career, then destroy your career and then do it and then rebuild it back up. Right. Otherwise, you're, you're otherwise you're just playing a game. Right. Yeah. And we're all yeah. here to be part of like, and all we're here is to do is to further your career yeah. and then, and then to clap you on the back and tell you how brilliant you are. That's, I don't know. Speaking of games, let's play the rest of the association game. So do you under, we understand the game. That was one of my films, right? These are, these are films that we think again, are in somehow, somehow in conversation with the master of PTA. And I think the, I'm still here thing with with the connection of Phoenix and this first film back sort of, I I watched the the master and I think anytime, anytime I see River Phoenix or Joaquin Phoenix, I think of that movie, right? So, I mean, that's kind of my connection, right? This is, this is, you know, the line from high fidelity, right? I can tell you how I got from Deep Purple to Howling Wolf in just 25 moves. That's yes. that, that's this game, right? So what, give me give me one of the films that you thought of. So one of the films I came back to, one of the films that Paul Thomas Anderson 
talks about being one of his favorite films. I don't know if it's his favorite film. I think clearly his his you know his Altman love is there, and I would argue that you know going back to Punch Drunk Love is probably his. I still think people call that a Superman story. I, I think it's more of a Popeye story sure. than, than sure. it's actually a Superman story. Yeah. That can be debated, and we can talk about that in a conversation show. The one that I went back to was Putney Swope. So oh, okay. I don't know if you've ever seen yeah. Putney Swope, but um, I recent, I watched it again just in the past couple of weeks. Just kind of, and it, it clearly doesn't inform his style at all. Uh, and for those who aren't aware, Putney Swope, Putney Swope was a 1969 film by uh, written and directed by Robert Downey, uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s father. He was a avant-garde experimental That's, filmmaker. Yeah. Um, this was, and so the movie is about this advertisement, this advertising agency, who their CEO, chairman of the board, dies. And they have, they have to go to a vote for the for the board to see who the next chairman is going to be, and they all vote for the person they think can, can't possibly win, and that person is Putney Swope, their only black member, who's their musical director. Um, the movie is very much a precursor to films like Kentucky Fried Movie and mm-hmm. Airplane. It it really informs that type of sketch type comedy in those types of films because it really it's the the thread is what would happen if if a if a black man took over a white advertising agency and then replaced all of the white employees with black employees for the most part right and then it's just a series of vignettes and 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 um different character pieces and then of course it interspersed with you know funny commercials that that they put that they come up with the first time i was ever, ever introduced to this film which was kind of embarrassing but was in the movie Johnny Be Good, which I'm sure you've never seen. I have seen Johnny Be Good. Yeah, it's a terrible movie. Uh. Um, but I've seen it. One, one I will. Anthony it, Michael Hall. In and the yeah, Robert Anthony Michael Jr. Hall, Anthony Michael Hall coming out of like his John Hughes face and kind yeah. of and pre Edward Scissorhands, so he was still he was he was still a teen. But not quite as bulky right. as he got. As he in got. He's still the, and he's the quarterback. He's the, he's, yeah, he's he's the, the star quarter, athlete. Yeah, he's the star quarterback of this uh, <laughs> this whatever high school. Right. And so the, so the the opening sequence of that, where he's playing his, his state championship game, mm. and and you know, my dick's broke, <laughs> rub some dirt on it. You know, just all of that. I, you know, God told me. You know, I, I talked to God today. Jesus wants me to go, not to go out there by like a bunch of f words and pussies and like just go out there and put a foot on their necks. Like, <laughs> all of that is. Th- there's a legitimate like decent. 15 minutes to that film that that are that um and it's the it's the first role for Uma Thurman. Oh right, that's right. Yeah. And so there's the, and and what's weird about that movie is that there's a PG-13 version of that film and then there's a R-rated mm-hmm. version of that mm-hmm. film. So I, I don't know and of course that was one of the first like for me director's cuts where there was just more nudity thrown into a into right. a movie to make it R-rated. But when they're at the drive-in Anthony Michael Hall meets up with his girlfriend Uma Thurman, who he can't meet at her house because her his her dad hates him. They're showing one of the commercials from Putney oh, Swope okay, on, okay, on, okay. on the drive-in, yeah. and it's this really bizarre, like non sequitur, and it's this um, this black guy and this white woman, and they're they're skipping through the fields, and it's like, and he's singing about how he 
saw her beaver flash and that's all you see like <laughs> and then she starts thinking about how she gave him a dry hump and so all of the commercials are like that and this is a commercial for zitz zit cream essentially it's the commercials are pretty brilliant the movie itself is kind of a hard watch just in the sense of you've got to know what you uh, obviously a lot of the satire that was going on in the you know in the 60s was of the time and you kind of have to get an idea of you know and clearly this is not that hard to 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 understand i mean there was a lot the, the whole concept of the movie is how white culture is embracing black culture and, and, and mm-hmm. utilizing because once Putney Swope takes over the advertising agency, all of these firms line up and basically Putney Swope is able to say, you know, I'm not going to listen to you guys. You're going to do exactly what I say. You're going to pay me up front and I'm going to do whatever I want. Um, and then it just kind of obviously blows up on him, you know, at the end of, you know, right. over, over time it is. So Paul Thomas Anderson takes, there's a couple of things that he takes from from Putney Swope. It, it, obviously, in Boogie Nights, Don Cheadle's name is Swope, and then in the the Sister Christian scene, the Chinese person who is lighting firecrackers that's actually in in Putney Swope. Swope. So if you're watching Putney yeah. Swope and you see that, you, you clearly know the go the connection. It doesn't really speak to too much about his filmmaking perspective, but it but it does. I I, I do I find it interesting his love of those films and love of those filmmakers. Of course, Paul Thomas Anderson's dad was like a character actor and a commercial actor. And, and, and he so. was a, it was a voiceover guy. Oh, he was like the voice of, uh, like the local CBS. Or right. Something, right. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that, that was my one thing that I kind of yeah. wanted to revisit was, was Putney Swope. And like I said, I would highly recommend going out and seeing it. I mean, I was trying to find it. Um, I think it's on Criterion. Yeah, that it has been. And there's a Criterion release of it um, if you don't, you know, if you want to find it at your... If you uh, want to buy physical media. Right, or right. however you rent things these right, days. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you should know, you have all the streaming services. <laughs> the second film or another film that I thought of or, or sort of saw as being in conversation was um, Paul Schrader's First Reformed. Um, okay. Yeah. From from 2017 with Ethan Hawke um, and Amanda Seyfried, um, where Hawke, I mean, is kind of the stand-in for for Schrader, right? He plays uh, Ernest Toller, a Calvinist pastor, who's kind of like just completely like lost his way. You've seen this film, yes. right? Yeah. yeah. He's he's lost his way. He's he's an alcoholic, right? He's mourning the death of his son in the in the Iraq War. He thinks the church has lost his way. Um, this character and and I think Schrader's kind of you know man alone in the room you know, with their thoughts, you know, kind of archetype. It, it plays plays in with PTA's kind of wayward males, I think, right? I see a lot of the uh, Schrader's darker, I think, than PTA, right, or than PTA's characters. But, I mean, look, Freddie and Ernst Toller are both going through, like, these existential crises, right? A constant existential crisis. Well, and, and look, if you're not going through an ex- existential crisis in 2022, are you even trying? <laughs> um, but, I mean, that's what I see those connections between those male lead characters. I don't, look, Schrader doesn't always work for me. I don't, I don't believe that Willem Dafoe's drug dealer character in Light Sleeper spends that much time journaling for therapeutic reasons, um, nor do I believe Travis Bickle <laughs> it spends that much time journaling, right? <laughs> do I believe that Toller, Ernst Toller in First Reformed spends time journaling like that? Yeah, I do. And, and I think that's when, when that kind of framing device works. Um, but it's really how these, how these kind of male characters and, and that search for self, right, for 
understanding of the world around them. Um, that's how I see those two coming in conversation a lot. Um, also, I think Schrader and PTA know more about film than the rest of the world ever will. Oh, for sure. I mean, I, I'm a, in terms of making references, I would love to do a conversation show about Schrader's films. Okay. One of, and again, yeah. you know, we don't have to do it tomorrow, but put a pin yeah. in it. Tomorrow I'm taking in that. But yes, yes. The, what? the, his, because I can talk for days just about his Exorcist prequel and how right. that all was, right. Right. Um, him and Rennie Harlan went back, you know, back to back with that, with that movie. I, I, I do like Schrader. Um, when when Schrader is good, he is really fucking good. And I completely, yeah, I totally agree. He he certainly can miss the mark a, a lot of the time, but I do believe that he's put to film and written some of the best films. Oh, in, in my in my lifetime, hands yeah, down. Yeah, yeah. I, no, I, I I agree, and I think again, like when he's good, I think he's really good. I uh, I like that his characters have this. CD side to them, almost like all of them have this kind of CD dark side. Um, even the character in First Reformed, that I think, right. yeah, uh, it, there's a dirty '70s aesthetic yeah, to yes, all of it, like to right? all of it. Um, well, I mean, which speaks to where kind of he came from, or how, or when he kind of came of age as right. a filmmaker, um, and his own sort of. Calvinist dealings, right? I mean, because I mean, Toller's kind of a stand-in for him anyway, right? <laughs> right. Um, but I don't think, and I don't think PTA can can capture that in the same way. So even though Freddie is kind of you know a depraved sort of degenerate, he's still kind of lovable, you know, like a mischievous puppy almost. He's a boy, right? right? Yeah, you, he's you, a yes, he's a boy. I mean, yeah. aside from because, look, he's clearly vile, right? In in the sense like he's like the things that he does sexually are disgusting. But from a perspective of, but again, it's more. But it's all acting out. And again, he's never, at least we don't see, that he's ever sexually violent. I mean, right, and, and clearly he right. he doesn't do any of that. He does everything in a schoolyard manner, right? Because of the things, you know, the things that he, the times that we see him having sex, which is at the, at the beginning of the film and at the, at the end, end, you know, he's more kind of tune in Tokyo at the beginning, right? It's, it's very fumbling. He doesn't yeah. really know what to do right. with the beautiful girl right. at the, at the end. Right. And at the, at the, I mean, I'm sorry, at the beginning and at right. the end of the movie, he's just kind of enamored with the experience and she's, you know, on top of him and, and he's kind of taking it all in. And it's, this is like the best experience for him. All the rest of it is just what, a, you know, an adolescent, a preteen, a prepubescent. What a prepubescent kid would, would, think, would say, or right. would think sex is, And, and right? that scene where he's masturbating into the ocean, it's yeah. just this ridiculous scene where you see half of his butt crack, and, right. like he, and he's, right. like, all hunched but over. Yeah, it's, 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 it's yeah, comical. It's ridiculous, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, uh, give me another one. So let me, uh, let me ask the question, because, again, as I'm watching a lot of this, clearly this is the scene where Dodd is riding the motorcycle, yeah. Is very reminiscent of Slim Pickens riding the nuclear bomb <laughs> down to Earth. This film felt very Kubricky Kubrick, to me, yeah. and, and I couldn't put a finger on it if it was just. I mean, it, it, all of the aesthetic. I think it has a lot of. It has a lot of the 2001 trappings. I. It has, and and, and it, I can't really say too much of of. You know, it, you know, does it really fit in with with Clockwork Orange? I don't really think so. Maybe a lot of the framing per se, but but I think the the strange love aspect of it and and 
the 2001 aspect of just just the the way that everything was positioned, everything that was framed, everything was set so perfectly, how everything was shot. Like, so the cinematography in this is just amazing. Yeah. And it's so easy to be overwhelmed by what's being presented to you. Like I said, it would have just... This film should never be shown outside of 70, 70 millimeter theaters, right? Because you should only have to be able to go in and watch it in that format. A nonstop traveling roadshow. Right. The idea that this would ever be on the on a small screen in the back of an airplane seat is just baffling to me, right? <laughs> like, how do you appreciate that? I don't know. That? I watch it on my phone. Oh, sure. I didn't. Right. I, I didn't. <laughs> kidding. Um, so nothing specific I would but, but okay, that, 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 whole, that whole scene and, and then maybe you know I, I, I was reading a little bit about you know some comparisons people were making especially at the time and, and they were making a lot of that brown bunny um, oh, sure. adjustments yeah. to basically because of, of, of the motorcycle scenes as well which I don't really right. I can't imagine Paul Thomas Anderson really finding much inspiration from, from, Vincent, from Gallo. Vincent Gallo or vice versa yeah. I, I you know and that and that being said I actually liked Brown Bunny, the 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 director's oh. cut of it being broken down. I actually like Buffalo Sixty Six. I, I think too. he's I an important too. person in right. real life. But, but this I mean, was before I knew a lot right, of that. Sure. Yeah. And so I you know, and again, there's lots of reasons to to not like Brown Bunny uh, sure. from a Chloe Seventy Eight yeah. perspective and, and the way that a lot of that marketing happened. But from a perspective of a film, an interesting I, I think he's an interesting filmmaker. I it's 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 um it's uh, unfortunate yeah. <laughs> that that he is the human being that, that, he, is. that he is who he is. Right. But but it, and so I, I but I agree. I don't think that there was. And again, I know I brought it up, but I don't I, I don't I don't think that there was a a lot of, of connection there aside from someone driving a motorcycle yeah. on, a, on a deserted way. Okay. But yeah, I, I cool. do like the idea. I do like you know again going back to the Kubrick piece. I that that whole scene where uh, Dodd is. Wahooing his way across the yeah, desert yeah, landscape. Yeah. That that seems so beautiful too, where they're both driving. I mean, it, it, obviously, you know, again, you can look at symbolism, and, and if it hits you too hard, it, it it can can play against you. But that scene where that whole scene where Dot is driving and, one way, and then Freddy's Freddy, driving the other way, and he doesn't and come back, gone. and it's just yeah, it's it's so good. It's uh, he in a way. Have you seen the film Melvin and Howard? Yes. Yeah. Because yes. that's from that too. Right. And that, um, well, again, with Jason Robards. And so you got the connection there. Um, all right. My last film is a twofer. Okay. <laughs> right. Um, because I couldn't, well, so it's Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Um, okay. And, and along with it's that, one of my favorite House of Games. Right. So oh, it, okay. you're, you're talking my, yeah, you're talking my but language. But here's the, here's the thing. And we talked a little bit about this last time. I know that. PTA is often more connected or spoken of in relation with like Scorsese and Altman, right? And especially if you look at Boogie Nights, he's like, look what I can do. I can do all this shit. But I think a lot of times, and especially in Hard Eight, the dialogue has some of these mammoth beats, right? And it's sort of like near iambic pentameter, but very kind of deliberate in the way that dialogue's spoken. There's that, but there's also every PTA movie, somebody's selling something, right? There's always this this aspect of, I'm selling you this, I'm selling you that, or I'm running a con, right? We have to sell porn, we have to sell sex, right? We have to sell religion, we have to sell toilet novelties, right? And, and punch right, right, but, yes. but in, and even Magnolia, right? You have that Tom Cruise playing that kind of, right. like, Jordan Peterson, sort of like, you know, a huckster. But, but there's always, there's that element of sort of hucksterism of, of, of running a con, which is so prevalent in, in mammoth films, right? From House of Games to especially Glengarry Glen Ross, where it's like the whole point of that film is, right? Always be closing, always be selling. So those, I, you know, I, I couldn't help 
but like watch PTA and think about those things in, in conjunction. It's interesting, and again, maybe I just haven't come across it, but I th- it's interesting to me that it hasn't come up, the connection hasn't come up more between those two. Yeah. Because the scene in Hard Eight, when John C. Riley and Gwyneth Paltrow have gone, and they're going to Niagara Falls, right? and Samuel Jackson breaks the window of Philip Baker Hall's car and is expecting that, you know, it, that whole dialogue scene just it seems directly out of a mammoth play right yes. it just seems yes it seems like that whole that whole <clears throat> interaction and to 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 almost to the detriment of that film to be quite honest because that to, that is clearly again going back to what we talked about last time Heart Eight was not the film he had a hard time making Heart Eight that was not the, the studios kind of took it away from him right and, that know. was not the film that he wanted to make and clearly he wanted to make the Boogie Nights film. But that scene just felt like, all right, well, let me throw Mamet's just just the timing of this and like the, the, the you know, the spinning around of the dialogue and, yeah. and the interaction between yeah. the two players. And I think both of those people could have interacted well with, you know, in a Mamet play, to be quite yeah. to be fair. In that diner scene, the first scene of the film is just it just screams, uh, you know, like something from. Like the bar scenes at Glengarry Glen Ross, right? When yes. Philip Baker Hall sits down and talks to, let me buy you a cup of coffee. It's just, I mean, those like beats and that way it's delivered is, yeah, the hesitation, the back and forth, the yeah. And, and to be fair, even the even the Philip Seymour Hoffman part in Hard Eight could be equated to the Alec Baldwin piece in Glengarry Glen Ross. Yeah. Right where it's completely out of the blue, and it but it sets the line for, it sets the line for Philip Baker Hall's. You know, lack of of basically what it it shows you where his character's line actually is, yeah, and where he would like to be, but what but his where he keeps coming back to so he can eke out a life for himself, and obviously, you find out later about the guilt and all that, all that right, kind of right. thing. Well, I, yeah, I don't want to relitigate like the Deus Ex Machina aspect of that film, so <laughs> right, it's clear, right, and that's where it falls apart, right? Because yeah. Matt would have never done that, no. right? It, it would have no. never been. It, that level of okay, we see this coming from a mile away. It, it is a it is a proficient first film. It is very well acted. Sure, but that piece and how it ended is yeah. it, it it look. It was a great sixty minute movie. Yeah, and then the last thirty minutes kind of just kind of pulls the rug out from underneath you. You can get by because the care because the actors because the acting is so good and it's and it's proficient enough to allow you to forgive a lot of its miscomings, but. Again, at the end of the day, that movie doesn't stick with you. Yeah. So I'm going to probably change mine. Um, but my last one is, and again, it doesn't really tie to the master per se, but back to Paul Thomas Anderson and one of his favorite uh, favorite actors and to what we're talking about now. But have you ever seen Oleana? But Oleana, <laughs> if you're not aware, is a David Mamet Because it's another Mamet. Stage play yeah. starring William H. Macy. Right. And I forget the actress's name, and that probably plays into a lot of what the, the, the stage play is actually trying to talk to. Uh, <laughs> but it's, it, is a stage, it is a stage play told in two parts. One is about a young female student of William H. Macy, who's a professor who's right. about to get tenure and she's failing his course and he's trying to help her out and then cut through middle of the film. Then it shifts. The power dynamic completely shifts and she accuses him of sexual harassment and he's right. trying to defend right. himself. So right. he's found himself on the, on the other end of, 
of the power dynamic, you know, uh, uh, sorry, I already said the power dynamic. He's trying to find himself on the other end of trying to figure out exactly where all this is going. And he's, it, it, it is a, it is an infuriating movie to watch. It is like, it is one of those movies. If you want to get into an argument with friends, watch Oleana. Okay. The poster, the tagline is, is like, whatever side you're on, you're wrong. <laughs> So it's a great, it's just, <laughs> it is, yeah, it's a great, like, fuck you to, to, to the audience, but it is so much fun to watch it with someone new and to like see the, the shift and like how the characters completely, it's almost like Lynchian, um, in a way where the characters are playing different roles halfway through the movie. It's kind of a okay. Mulholland Drive almost okay. switched okay. to it. And again, clearly this is the same names. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm stretching a little bit Sure, there. but I, yeah, I gotcha. Um, I mean, I, I know the William H. Macy of it, and that's kind of, and I know like the scenario, and that's sort of about, about it. So I'm going to have to... It, look, it's it's not... <laughs> I can see where it's frustrating, and it's not. It's probably not the one that you would go to. I... I, I, it, but it is, it is... Can I pair it with In the Company of Men? And like... Um, I would pair it with the shape of things more than I okay. would uh, in the company of okay. men. Okay. And another guy who's, um, yeah, I, I didn't mean to shift to no, the no, no. I, 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 a person whose initial career I was really enamored with, and then just nothing that he's done as of late has been interesting at yeah. all. He hit a wall of where it was. I think he had certain things to say, and then there was nothing else after yeah. that. Yeah. Anything else you want to say about Oleana? Uh, no, no, no. Okay. Um, well, that was fun. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So um, yeah, so our uh, you know go watch the master. Yeah, go watch the it. master, and then watch old. the other things that we sort of you know, put in conversation with it because right. you might find those more interesting after watching and, master and let us know or if not. you if you if we miss something or if you disagree with us. Please, yes, I'd, I mean, I'd, I'd like to know about it. I, I, I'll give them your phone number. I'll make sure to add that <laughs> right. in the notes as well, so that it's they can. One eight hundred taint is what. They're oh Oh, no. <laughs> um, okay, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. <laughs>